You guessed it. It's another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. This is episode 532, where I had the pleasure of sitting down with someone I've admired for a long time. His name's John Warlow, and he has written a couple books, well, now three books on selling companies. And it's it's not SaaS or startup specific, but I really respect John's experience building and selling his own companies. And his first book, Built to Sell, had a pretty big impact on me as we were going through the experience of selling Drip. So I was honored to get him on the podcast today. He is a big name in the M&A space, and his book was just released last week. It's called The Art of Selling Your Business. And we effectively just talk through a few pieces of advice John has, and I ask him questions about, about all types of stuff. And he has such a myriad of experience. It's a really good conversation, even if you're not selling today. The, the thing I like too is he's not selling services. He's not saying you should sell your business or here's how to do it and now pay me to broker you. He's not a broker. And I, I just really appreciate that aspect of what John does. But before we dive into that, we have a new podcast review from Tax Podcast Fan in the US. And they say, five stars, the OG SaaS podcast. I've been listening to this podcast off and on for at least five years. So much actionable wisdom. Thank you so much. We have... 875 worldwide ratings. Not all have reviews, but I would love to get to a thousand ratings. If you haven't clicked five stars in Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use, I would really appreciate it. If you haven't heard, Tiny Seed Batch 3 applications are open. They're open for about another week from today, from when this episode goes live. If you run a SaaS company, Bootstrap SaaS, that's doing at least, let's say, $500 a month in MRR and up, you should apply. If you're interested in getting mentorship and advice and being in a batch experience where you're in the trenches with other founders, as well as the funding we offer, and unfettered access to myself and Anarvol set and other knowledgeable SaaS folks, I would encourage you to apply. You can head to tinyseed.com slash apply. Also, if you feel like maybe you're not ready yet, we are going to be running another application process later this year. We raised Tiny Seed Second Fund, and it allows us to start funding more companies because that's been the issue to date, is that we get more quality applications for good businesses than we've been able to fund based on you know the first uh, round of funding we raised. So tinyseed.com if you're interested. And with that, let's talk about the art of selling your business. John Warlow, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Hey, good to be here. It is a pleasure to have you, sir. I, I think I mentioned this to you. So I came on your show, Built to Sell Radio, a few months back. And I think I mentioned it on there that your first book about selling companies called Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was something that I read multiple times as I was going through the exit process with Drip. And then I stumbled upon Built to Sell Radio. And I thought, is this going to be kind of, I don't know, the typical kind of fluff around selling a company where they don't dig into real stories? And I was blown away by by how much information that you're able to, to convey and how helpful your examples are on Built to Sell Radio because they're real companies and you interview, I mean, my memory was there was like services company and there are some tech companies, but there's an awful lot of like physical products. And so it just feels like it's not these Silicon Valley, I sold Instagram for a billion dollars in a weekend stories. It's what I see as the true, more true look at what it's like to, to sell a company. Do you hear that a lot? No, but it means a ton for, for me to hear that from you. And you're absolutely right. We try to interview the real entrepreneur, right? So our sweet spot is kind of a deal in the kind of one to $20 million of value and their life-changing 
events for the entrepreneurs who experience them, and they will never show up on a headline. And that's the sweet spot for us. We try to unpack those and try to understand the pitfalls to avoid and the, the mistakes to avoid and some of the successes. And, and you are an incredible example of that. When, when we had you on, it was one of the best rated episodes of show of all time. So I, I'm grateful for you to be on our show too. Absolutely. So as we're recording this, you're launching your book this week. This will go live next Tuesday. So last week, in essence, your third book in your trilogy uh, about selling your company is available now. And so, I, you know, honestly, I have a preview copy. I'm going to buy the Audible. I got an Audible alert today. Um, I'm going to go buy that version. But folks, seriously, should check out. You have a Kindle version for 10 bucks. You can go on Amazon, any local bookseller, and Audible for an audiobook if you want to check it out. The book is titled The Art of Selling Your Business. The subtitle is Winning Strategies and Secrets. Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. And the way you had framed it to me, see, I hadn't realized there was a trilogy. I had read Built to Sell, as I said, and then I had noticed you wrote a book called The Automatic Customer, which is about getting subscription revenue. I never read that because we run SaaS companies and, and that's built in for us. And so I didn't realize that you were then going to kind of make a capstone, the art of selling your business. Could you talk through a little bit? Because, you know, I'm guessing a good chunk of the audience has heard of or has read Built to Sell because it's popular in our circles. How is The Art of Selling Your business different than maybe the other, either built to sell or, or the other two? Yeah, sure. So built to sell is how do you build a valuable company structuring so that it's not dependent on you personally. The automatic customer is all about recurring revenue. And you're right, for SaaS company, that's old news. But for a lot of businesses, that's a new way to think. So there's nothing faster that will take you from a multiple of EBITDA to a multiple of revenue when you go to sell your company than to have recurring revenue, which is the kind of subject around the automatic customer. The thing that is really interesting is I often, not these days given the pandemic, but I have to get asked to speak to entrepreneurs. And when I talk about either the automatic customer or built to sell, oftentimes the questions that the audience have at the end of my, my speech have nothing to do with my content. They'll be like, yeah, that was great. I really appreciate recurring revenue stuff. But what I really want to know is how do I avoid an earnout? Or, you know, like, yeah, that was great, but what's an escrow? And I realized that there is a real appetite, I think, among entrepreneurs to know some of the nuts and bolts, the best practices, the hacks for selling a company, the actual transaction itself. And so that was the idea. It's really like build, accelerate. And then this last book, The Art of Selling Your Business, is really about harvesting the value you've created. So that's the backstory. Very cool. Okay. And you know, one of the things, I mean, I think one of the reasons I was drawn to Build to Sell originally, and, and your writing in general, is not only was it referred to me by multiple people, but there are so many books written by people who have never done it. And and that's okay, but it's a more of a, that's a journalistic approach. Prior to writing your books, you started and exited four companies, including selling one to a public company. Then you went, wrote your book, you started your podcast. Now you've interviewed hundreds of founders in depth about real exits, as we'll continue to say, the one to 20 million, which is the vast, vast majority of, <laughs> you know, of what companies will sell for, I'm guessing on this earth. It's like the billion dollar exit is just such the outlier. So like listeners, if, if you're listening to this and you've never heard of John or, or his books, he is both a practitioner and now someone who has just a broad range uh, of knowledge around this, obviously having written three books and, and done these interviews. I think I want to start with a question of if a founder is listening to this and they're thinking, should I sell my business or, or when is a good time versus a 
bad time to sell? Like how can a business owner know or think about when is the right time to sell their company? Yeah, I mean, right now a lot of people are asking that question, right? Because the pandemic has caused a lot of founders to suffer. Now in the SaaS world, it's a bit different, right? Technology is kind of in many cases sort of swum through the, uh, you know, the pandemic relatively unscathed. But in the, the old school economy, it has been crushing for in particular a lot of service businesses. And so that's caused a lot of business owners to want to sell, want to get out. Of course, the business itself is not always in great shape. The counterbalancing force, I think, right now to that is, that interest rates are so low and the biggest majority of deals that get done in this space we're talking about today are funded by private equity groups and they run on basically good debt. They run on good debt terms. So when a private equity group can get debt cheap, it accelerates their appetite to buy businesses. So right now it's a funny time because on one hand you think, oh, it's a terrible time to sell your business. On the other hand, given low interest rates, it's actually a very good time. And you're seeing M&A markets... I think reflect that. So I think it's actually kind of a, a, a unique time in history to, to be thinking about this topic. You know, in the conversations I have both with founders I'm invested in and listeners of this podcast, microconf attendees and such, I have heard that there is, it's, I don't know if frothy is the right word, but there are definitely a lot of transactions happening. And maybe, you know, to your point earlier of SaaS, we're lucky because SaaS is still growing across the board and in some cases has been accelerated by the pandemic. And not to state the obvious, a SaaS company you can still use at home, right? So, yeah, it's it's a big deal. And, and you know, I think we are, as good as it is right now for a SaaS company, I think we run the risk of riding it over the top. Have you ever had a guy named Rand Fishkin on your show? So... I haven't yet, but Rand is a friend of mine. He's an investor and a mentor in Tiny Seed. He is was going to speak at MicroConf last year, but obviously we postponed it. So Rand, I'm invested in his company. So yes, I know Rand very well. Love his book. Yeah, you would have read Lost and Founder. It's a great book for any SaaS founder. It is like required reading. But I had Rand on, on the show and I had him tell the story of when Brian Halligan from HubSpot came and tried to acquire SEO Moz. Did you, have you ever heard this story? It's just... I have. You want to tell it here? Because it's, it's really fascinating. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just it, because it speaks to this idea of riding it over the top. It, it's, um, and when's the right time to sell? So Halligan comes to Rand. Rand has built SEO Moz software SaaS business to something around five, 5.4, if memory serves, million dollars in ARR, annual recurring revenue. And Halligan says, look, you know, we want to buy your business. We're going to give you an offer of 25 million bucks of cash and HubSpot stock. And Rand is like in his mind, he's heard this number of four times top line revenue. And he's on the way from five to what he thinks that year is going to be 10 million in annual recurring revenue. And so he's like four times 10 is 40. And here's Halligan offering me 25. So long story short, Rand turns him down. And instead takes a venture capital round and the VCs get him to launch a bunch of products in unrelated categories. Long story short, those products fail. Rand actually goes through a period of depression where he's actually removed from the board by the, by the venture capitalists. The way venture capitalists often invest is they use preferred shares, so they're guaranteed a preferred return. And I said, what's your stake in, I interviewed him after this all went down, and I said, what's your stake in Moz Worth these days? And he's like, I don't think it's actually worth anything because once the VCs get their preferred return, there's nothing really left for us. And I said, wow. What? And he's like, well, what's worse is I've got to spend the bulk of the rest of my assets, the cash that I have on elder care for my grandparents. And I said, well, out of interest, what would that offer 
from Halligan now be worth given the increase in HubSpot stock? And he said it would be worth close to $200 million. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, it, I, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but it's just, I think, a, a, an indication or an illustration of riding it over the top when you know, that one answer to the question, a somewhat glib answer to the question, when's the best time to sell? It's like when somebody makes you an offer, because at that point you've got negotiating leverage, right? You're not courting them, they're courting you. And you can, you can use that to your advantage, but there is the risk, I think, of riding it over the top, meaning, meaning not selling when someone offers you a, a reasonably good sum for your company. Yeah, that was definitely something I was concerned about back when we were running Drip and, and building it. And it was it was growing quickly, but there were a lot of competitors. The the stock market valuations of of public SaaS companies was climbing, 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 and it was up at I think it was seven times revenue. And then it got cut in half in January of 2016, which was right around the time people started. There were a lot of people sniffing around at that point. And it was down at like 3.2 or something of revenue. And suddenly that became a multiple that people making, you know, potential acquirers were, were going to base their offers on. Not to say you wouldn't negotiate against that, but that was that was an instant justification of like, oh, SaaS isn't, isn't worth as much anymore. And I remember thinking, uh-oh, did we ride this over the top? And, our, you know, we've had this sustained growth of the stock market and of the economy for at that point it was from basically 2009 to 2016 seven years that feels starts to feel a little long we're even further into that now and i you know i know that i've predicted five of the last two recessions but i (laughs) (laughs) but i do I, i do as a startup founder like if you get that offer it's tough to walk away from you know if there's an offer for enough money you never have to work again you really have to ask yourself do I want to walk away from that? And at the possibility of doubling that in the next year or doubling that in the next two or three years, because there's there's just always a risk. And I don't think you or I want to be too sky is falling about it of, oh, anytime an offer comes by, you should sell blah, blah, blah. But what we see in the movies of, or what we, what we read on TechCrunch of, it sounds like every company gets an offer every few months. And that that's not the reality that, that I've experienced. It, would you agree with that? I agree a hundred percent. You know, you, you'll get those phishing letters from brokers who say, Hey, I've got a buyer that wants to buy your business. Those are usually not true or disingenuous. You'll also get a lot of phishing letters from private equity groups. And those are sourcing agents. They're just trying to get a proprietary deal and a prop deal is where the acquirer has proprietary or unique or exclusive access to buying your business. And it's a recipe for making sure you sell your business for much less than it's worth. So there are bad actors out there who are trying to essentially prey on your naivete, your your ignorance about the process. So you will get those letters. Those are different than a genuine, large, recognizable company that comes to you and says, look, we've seen what you're doing and we want to buy your business. Like in your case, lead pages you know, came to you. That's a very different conversation than you know a chop shop that's just basically cranking out letters that basically swap out the first name of the person. You can quickly discern those by asking or responding and saying, you know, thanks for your interest. Tell me what specifically about our business did you find most compelling? And most of the time they'll stutter and go, uh, I don't, you know, because they, they have no clue what your business does. Right, it's a mass cold email. I think that's I think that's a good point to raise. And piggybacking on that, let's say I'm I'm a startup founder, I'm a SaaS founder, I'm doing whatever, a million dollars a year, two million dollars, five million. And I and I do get an email from a company that I, whether it's private equity or whether it's a strategic potential acquirer, but they're probably much bigger than me. They probably have done this a lot more times than me. And they in my mind, have more leverage. So what's 
the best way that you you know would advise a startup founder to to try to gain leverage when negotiating with a player that is so much larger or more experienced than they are? Yeah, I mean, piggybacking on on the last comment, I would definitely say getting multiple offers gives you that leverage. I'm reminded of James Murphy. I, I interviewed him for the show. He, he developed something called Viviscal, which is like hair loss treatment for women. turns out women uh, lose their hair for different reasons than guys do. And he developed this hair loss treatment. Anyways, it became a huge success. Got Reese Witherspoon to endorse it. Got it to like 50 million bucks in revenue. Not, not totally ARR, but you know, annual revenue. And, and he went through a process. He got 12 bidders for the company. And the best offer at that time was, I think, 103 million euros. They're based in Ireland. Well, the 12 offers were perfect because that gave him great leverage. He you know, played one off the other through a whole process, got it down to just two offers, both of which would, were then upping their increased their offer to 130 million euros. And then, of course, he went through a second round of like playing one off the other and ultimately got 150 million euros from C&D, the guys who own Trojan condoms, along with other a bunch of other you know, consumer packaged goods. The moral of the story is, is he never would have been able to gin up the offers that much had he not started with 12 really good ones. And so that's, you know, he's a tiny company relative to C&D, but it was the recipe he needed to, to kind of punch above his weight. So how does one do that? You know, I'm imagining you get this email and it's like, oh, I guess I should start a conversation because they said, are you willing to sell? And typically I, the advice that I've, what I did and the advice I've heard is, you know, you, you play hard to get, but of course you can almost reply with, ah, everybody has a price type thing, but, but you don't want to, you don't want to act too eager, right? Like I'm really looking forward to it. Is that how you would, like, how, how would you say, hey, what, what, what is your first response, you know, to, to an email like this as a founder? To an email from a potential acquirer, like legitimate that you vetted that you think are, are real? Right, like you recognize the name as like, you know, Facebook, Facebook uh, Corp Dev, you know, emails me and says, hey, we are looking for strategic, you know, acquisitions in your space. I know they would never do that out, up front and there's a bunch of code words they use about partnerships and, you know, that, but when you get to that point, like, how do you interact with that from the start to try to balance like hard to get, but also wanting the process to continue or the conversation? Yeah, look, I think there's there's no there's no harm in having that conversation with a strategic acquirer. And I think going into that, what you're going to want to do is arm yourself with a, an entire bucket full of what questions. What questions, of course, are open-ended questions that elicit the creativity of the person you're asking the question of. So if I was to go into a meeting with Facebook corporate development, I would have you know 10 or 20 questions that start with things like, what was it that you found in my company that you were interested in? What do you think the strategic fit is? What do you think some of the barriers would be? What would the, basically what you're trying to do is dominate the conversation. You're trying to get them talking for 99% of the time. And the reason you use what questions is they are open-ended and force an answer and you keep control just like a good salesperson in a consultative selling context would never let the prospect to take control of the conversation. Equally, you never let the corporate development person take control. So you want to be on the offensive. When I say offensive, I'm not talking about you talking. I'm saying you pushing them to keep talking. And that's, I think, the way you're going to get much more information out of them than you're going to give to them. The idea of getting suckered into, if you will, a proprietary deal or a prop deal, which is what these strategics call it when you sort of start negotiating with them independently, 
means that you're going to give up a lot of negotiating leverage. So it's, I think it's okay to have that conversation. You just don't want to give up too much information. Like information in an M&A process is valuable, right? So I've got a crude analogy in the book. It's like a strip tease. And I know it's terribly crude and not very, it's not very politically correct. But in essence, you know, the selling of your business is somewhat like a strip tease where the information about your company, your ARR, your net churn rate, your, you know, whatever, that's all like your clothing. You, you want to leave it on, but undress in a very strategic, tantalizing cadence, which is designed to maximize the, you know, your attractiveness in the eyes of an acquirer. It's all done very deliberately. I had someone ask me recently, you know, I've got an acquisition, uh, you know, someone's looking at acquiring our business. Should I share my QuickBooks login information with them? And my answer was no, that's a little premature. <laughs> so again, it's like information about your business is 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 very precious and it's it's to be doled out or dripped out to use uh, to use your your word very slowly and deliberately. Yep. And get an NDA before you give MRR. <laughs> that's that's at least my typical advice to founders. Like why would I give my revenue to someone without having some type of, of NDA signed? Yeah, an NDA is going to be a good proxy for interest because acquirers don't like signing NDAs uh, because it, it exposes them to liability. So if you've got a tire kicker, someone is just sniffing around your company to get competitive information, they're unlikely to want to sign an NDA. Whereas if you've got someone genuinely interested, they'll sign an NDA. So you mentioned earlier a proprietary process where basically that you don't have other bidders. You don't have a competitive bidding war in essence that you set up. I know that there are there are folks who who run these processes. Like my co-founder with Tiny Seed founded a company called Discretion Capital and it does sell side processes for SaaS companies, right? So they'll contact a bunch of private equity, they'll contact a slew of strategics, and they they run that process to create a bidding war. You know, when you said that the guy, I forget his name, but who, who was selling earlier, who had a dozen offer, like that's, that is crazy. Like that's amazing to have a dozen offers. So is that what he did? Did he run a process himself? Did he get help to to run a process or how does that usually look like cuz it sounds for me as a I'm not big into the the spreadsheets the MBA stuff I'm a startup founder who's building a business it sounds complicated and frankly a little scary to me so h- how does that work out yeah i mean dan sullivan the guy who founded the strategic coach talks about these things being who problems not how problems w- what i mean by that is that and what dan means by that is that these things finding multiple bidders for your company is is something that we as a founder think is our job. And actually, it's not our job. It's it's an M&A professional's job to find and acquire for your company. That's what they do, right? So instead of trying to figure out how to do it yourself, I would, on all cases, hire an M&A professional. Look, that's not, like, that's not what I do for a living. So I say that without trying to sound, you know, like you can't hire me to do that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to make it uh, a commercial for me, but I think they're worth their weight. They're going to create competitive tension for your deal. I think the only exception to that, I interviewed a guy, Peter Kelly is the guy's name, and he built a SaaS company for online auctions of used cars. Like it's not a sexy business, but it's basically an auto trader for used cars where if you're a car dealer, you can buy your inventory on this website. Well, the competitors in that space, there are three giant old school auctioneers that own that space, right? And and they are old school. Like the big car goes through, goes on the conveyor belt and the used car dealer sits there with a pencil and paper and writes down the specs and makes an offer. Like it is, it couldn't be more old school. And so all three of these giant 
auctioneers had approached Peter about buying his company. And so Peter, for a variety of reasons, decided it was time to sell. And in that case, he just went to all three and said, okay, you've expressed interest, make your best offer. He knew who they were. He did not want to run an auction because he was afraid that if he told BMW and Ford about his business model, they would create competitive auctions. So he wanted to keep it very, very close to these three companies. He was very sure they already wanted to make an offer. I mean, that's a fairly unusual circumstance. In that case, you might run your own process. But again, in almost all other cases, I think an M&A professional is going to really pay for themselves by creating this competitive tension. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that's a, a mistake that a lot of founders make, myself included, of we start our company and you're doing everything and you can learn things quickly and you feel like you're really good at learning and picking up new skills. This is a skill that is not something you can learn easily. And in fact, when we, you know, I've said this many times, when we sold Drip, one of the first things I did as it got serious was to hire uh, representation, essentially, a, a broker who acted as an investment banker on our, you know, an advisor on our side, because he had done, I don't know, dozens and dozens of deals, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and just knew what was standard and knew when to talk me off the ledge, because it was it's a very emotional process, as, as a lot of people talk about. So that is one thing. And same, same thing with me. I'm not selling anything either. <laughs> I'm not a broker. I, you know, it doesn't matter to me if folks hire a broker or a an advisor to do this. But I think it's just, it's, as you said, worth your weight in gold, not only for the advice that you get, but I think for the, almost the mental side of things, right? The reassurance that I'm at least going about this. It's like, would you, would you sign the contract without a lawyer reviewing it? You know, you're going to hire a lawyer to do stuff. So why would you construct a deal without someone on your side who really knows how to construct deals well? Yeah, I, I think you're hitting on it right with, there's a, a, a very practical reason. I mean, this is what they do. This is their job, right? There's also that emotional reason where they act as that foil. Like there's nothing, you know, like think about you're pounding your fist on the table, asking for like an extra half turn multiple, an extra whatever. And then like the next day you're, you're reporting to that individual, right? That you've burnt all that relationship capital, you know, being just a, a jackass in the negotiation. And now you've got to somehow put your tail between your legs and say, oh, please, could I have some more budget to do X, Y, or Z? So it's, look, I think you want to insulate yourself. The broker, the good broker can play both good and bad cop, by the way. So they can they can play bad cop, right? They can insulate you and they can pound their fist, whatever. They can also do the opposite. They can be the good cop. And when you're pounding your fist and frustrated with something, they can sort of communicate that frustration, but in a much softer way to the other side. So when we're recording this, I think today, Rob, you know, by the time it airs, it'll be a couple of days ago, but I think today is the anniversary of Sully, the 12-year anniversary, if I've got it right, of Sully landing the plane on the Hudson River. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yep. Man. So I think it's the anniversary. And I think it's the perfect analogy for a SaaS founder selling their company. Sully had done like literally everything there was to do in an airplane, Sully had done in his 40-year career, right? Like he, he'd flown first seat, left seat, right seat. I mean, he'd, he'd gone through terrible turbulence. He'd done everything there was. He was, in fact, a trainer. Uh, you know, like we trained other younger pilots. He had never in his 40-year career had the opportunity to land a plane on the Hudson River. One shot, huge stakes. The same is true for a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Like we've, we've been running our company for, in many cases, decades. We could talk all day long about marketing funnels and hiring employees and NDAs. But when it comes to the mechanics of selling, it's just not something you practice every day. 
Yeah, indeed. You, you may do it once or twice in your life, but there's people who've done it 20, 30, 40 times. And, and if I have a marketing campaign and I buy some Google AdWords and I accidentally leave it on or I get low click-through rates, I might burn thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, depending on scale. If you sell your company poorly and you don't negotiate for things that maybe you should, you can leave literally millions of dollars on the table. And that's, that's why this is important. I interviewed a guy, his name's Chris Jones. Have you ever had Chris on the show? He, he ran an affiliate marketing program called Pepper Jam. Do you know Chris? Mm-mm, I haven't heard of him. So good guy. And I interviewed him on the show about this kind of idea of leaving money on the table. And so he gets a call from Michael Rubin, who was the founder of GSI, sold to PayPal, big, huge, multi, multi, multi-million dollar deal. Michael Rubin calls up Chris and says, come down and see me. I'm intrigued by this company, Pepper Jam, what you guys are doing. So Chris goes down and he's expecting like a one-on-one sort of meeting with Michael. And instead he walks into Michael's office and there is his chief financial officer and his chief counsel sort of flanking him. And without even exchanging sort of like, hi, how are you? (laughs) Michael says to Chris, what do you want for Pepper Jam? And Chris is like, uh, (laughs) you know, like I was expecting a a conversation here. And Michael kind of repeated, he's like, what do you want for your company? And Chris blurted out a number, you know, feeling on the spot. And Ruben turned to his chief counsel and his CFO and said, okay, I think we can get a deal done. And what he was communicating to his lieutenants was, don't pay a penny more than the number Chris just said. And Chris, upon reflecting after being put on the spot, he says, you know, I probably should have answered that differently because I put a ceiling on which I'm never going to sell beyond. It's just one of the mistakes I think we make is, is, is when entrepreneurs or when choirs approach us and say, okay, like, what do you want for it? Like, we're under no requirement to answer that question. In fact, I think answering it is usually a mistake. Right. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. There's something else in your book that I'm really intrigued by. You know, I like mental frameworks and I like kind of rules of thumb. And I feel like this 520 rule is, is an interesting rule of thumb and I had never heard it anywhere else. You want to tell people what that is? Simply put, uh, the 5 to 20 rule means that a company that's going to acquire your business is likely going to be between 5 and 20 times the size of your company. Now, that's not always going to be the case. Clearly, Google makes Aqua hires all the time, and they're thousands of times more. But it's a rule of thumb. And it means that the most likely acquirer for the companies, I, I think, in our community, that, and, and I say that your audience, if you will, they're likely not going to be Google and Tesla and Facebook. You know, that's just, just not necessary. It just doesn't move the needle for them. But most likely to get an offer from a private equity group, someone rolling up SaaS companies together because they're generally in that space and you're going to be a material acquisition for them, but it's also not so big an acquisition that it's going to put their company out of business. So it's just worth, as you look out in the landscape and say, like, who's most likely to buy my business? You might throw Google and Tesla and Apple on your on your list, but realistically, it's probably someone slightly smaller, again, between five and 20 times the size of your company. Nice. Yeah, I like that. I think it makes sense. And what you said, you know, you use the phrase aqua hire, and most folks have heard that, but that's different than what we're talking about. We're talking about selling your company and getting a really great multiple on revenue. That's to a strategic or private equity, and there's a whole process that goes on there. And 
Acquihire is when there's a really small team, oftentimes just the founders. And like you said, Google or Facebook comes and says, we like the tech you built. We're probably going to kill the tech. We just want you to come work for us. And they give, typically it's a lot of stock, right? I mean, you might get a half million or a couple million dollars in public company stock. Is that kind of how you describe an Acquihire as well? That's exactly right. And, and really their BATNA, best alternative to negotiated agreement, in other words, their plan B, is they're going to hire a recruiter from Hydrogen Struggles or some fancy recruiting house, and they're going to go hire for your people, right? So they're, they're just doing the math and say, okay, you know, get a CEO, I got to hire a recruiter, a headhunter, and it's going to cost me, you know, hundred grand. And then I got some VPs, that's going to cost me 80 grand each. And so it's 600 grand. So give them some stock and yeah, you're right. Like kill the tech. We just want the people. That's an aqua hire. So I want to ask you if there are any kind of maybe evil tricks is maybe a strong word, but any any worse practices that let's say a big like a Fortune 500 or private equity group might use to prey on on a more inexperienced founder. You know, there's there's tons of them. That's why I dedicate a whole section of the book to this, these sort of like you know the things that that acquirers do that you need to look out for. I think probably the most damaging is something called retrading, where you agree to a price for your company at a letter of intent stage. And when you sign a letter of intent, you've got to sign a no shop clause, right? Meaning you're not going to negotiate, continue to negotiate with anybody else. It's like getting engaged, you agree not to see other people. At that point, the leverage in the deal goes from you as the seller having most of the negotiating leverage to now it's all in the hands of the buyer, right? And they know that. And Retrading happens when they use that leverage to manufacture reasons to lower the price they offered you at the LOI. So that's an evil trick they use because, first of all, they know they're probably dealing with someone who's going through this the first time, that you've probably told your employees, you've told your spouse, you've bought the ski house in your mind, and you are now very emotionally committed to selling. And they just say, well, we're going to drop our price by 10%. And you say, why? And they say, well, that's just our decision. <laughs> and you have very little recourse. In a letter of intent, it's usually non-binding, meaning they can walk away, you can walk away. But if you do walk away and go back to the other people you had at the table before, they're all going to wonder what they found in due diligence. What's, what's lurking in your closet? What skeletons do you have that they found? And so there's going to take a very skeptical view of your company if you say, yeah, we were going to do a deal, but it fell apart. And they're going to just really highly scrutinize you. So retrading is a fact of life. It's one where you can defend yourself against it. First of all, by hitting your numbers. Like if you have numbers that you put in a plan that you've shared with an acquirer, during due diligence, you got to hit those numbers. Equally, there's illegitimate retraining, which is the one I'm talking about, where it's done for no other reason other than because they can. Yeah, that's a that's crappy. And you, you talked about that a little bit in Built to Sell, and I had heard of folks doing that. I luckily I have you know I've had cursory involvement in dozens of exits where either a founder just gives me a phone call and says, "Hey, I'm thinking about selling," and we talk about it or whatever. So, and I haven't heard that happening, but obviously. That's rough. And I would have a tough time working for that, for that company if they did. I, f I would feel like I got screwed, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's, again, you're emotionally so far deep into the process that it, it just becomes, I just did an interview on the show. I don't think it's gone live yet when we, when we talk, but it described a two year sailing process where the acquirer made an offer. They both mutually signed a letter of intent. And then the acquirer couldn't come up with the money. 
and they dragged him out, dragged him out, dragged him out for nine months, and then they they bailed, and it and it went on for, yeah. So that's that happens, and it's a dirty underbelly of the world of of acquisitions. The other one that comes to mind around tricks that big companies use is tying your earnout to something that is completely out of your control or so outlandish that you're never going to hit it. So an earnout, of course, is where you you get some cash up front and then there's a, a future payment. And it's less common in a SaaS business. So mo- many of your listeners hopefully will be able to avoid an earnout. Some of them, especially those in a service business, would would certainly have to, to deal with an earnout. And one of the classic tricks is is to tie an earnout with thresholds that you have to hit along the way in order to unlock budget to hit the next gate. And so I'm reminded of a, of a guy named Rod Drury. Rod started Zero, the cloud-based accounting platform that you've heard of, big competitor to QuickBooks. Before he started Zero, he actually created a company called Aftermail, which was a, a way to archive email. And it was a very successful company. Built it up, sold it for 45 million bucks. That was the headline number. But it was actually after we unpacked it on the show, 15 million in cash, the rest in an earnout. Well, Rod, as you can imagine, like he sells his, he's a young guy. He sells his business for 15 million bucks. I mean, like this is life changing money. Like it, it blew his mind and he had trouble kind of getting back in the driver's seat. He had trouble hitting his first gate, which would have unlocked budget to help him hit the, the earnout. Anyway, six months later, he bailed and walked away from whatever it is, 30 million bucks that he was stood to gain if he stuck it out for three years. But what he realized was like he'd signed up for this thing that he had no chance of hitting because he needed like six months just to sober up and, and, and unwind from the sale, which he just didn't, didn't give himself. So he missed the first gate and then it's impossible to reach the next. Yeah, and that that is something that I tell founders who are are thinking. I was actually talking to a founder literally right before this uh, call with with you and I, and he has an offer, and it's a life changing, never have to work again number. And we were kind of talking about what that means. And the advice I often give is like, yeah, just when you when you sell the company, you know, if you do have an earnout and you still have to work, it gets a little easier because you can kind of breathe easy of like, wow, I've I've taken a lot of risk off the table, but it. It's tough to keep your head in the game, you know, and I, I think that's pretty common. Did you have an earnout with lead pages? I can't remember. Yeah, we did. Yeah. It was pretty. How was it? It was relatively short. They were very reasonable, and we also negotiated pretty hard to to keep it short. For us, it, it actually wasn't bad at all. And and I think I don't know if we got lucky or you know, or it was judgment that we did. I mean, we chose to sell to lead pages rather than some other interested acquirers because I did trust that they were going to treat us well. And they did. And it wasn't based on any of the the gotcha numbers, right? There were there was no like revenue. There were no milestones that I felt uncomfortable with, if that makes sense. And that was in the end, it was it was definitely a good decision for us. And so yeah, no regrets there. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, if you could get your earnout tied to something other than earnings, it's kind of ironic given the name earnout, but if you could get it tied to like a goal like top line revenue, even then you've got probably a little more control. The problem with tying an earnout to your earnings is of course, once you're a division of another company, you lose control over your financials. That gets done by head office. They can oftentimes graft other expenses onto your PL because head office expenses. It just gets messy trying to control the expression of profit when you don't control it anymore. So, you know, if you have to deal deal with an earnout, getting it tied to something more like revenue or in your case like launching of a feature, like that's way way more in your control. Yep. And so, as we wrap up, 
you know, as of, let's say three years ago, if a founder were to email me and say, hey, I'm thinking through this exit, maybe they have no offers, maybe they have an LOI, whatever it is. If I have time, I always jump on a, just a 30 minute call just to chat with them, just to give them some moral support and kind of talk through the mental process. But I also recommend that they listen to at least a few episodes of Built to Sell Radio just to kind of get their head around how it might be. And I recommend a few books. So it used to be Built to Sell and Finish Big by Bo Burlingham, which I, I really like that book. I read it multiple times as well as we were exiting. Now I've added two more to that list. There's one called Before the Exit by Dan Andrews. And you actually interviewed his co-founder, Ian Schoen, on the show many years ago. They had a cat furniture and VA podium, valet podium business. So Before the Exit, Thought Experiments for Entrepreneurs is a good one. And as of today, I'm adding The Art of Selling Your Business. Again, if you're thinking about selling your business, this is just, or even if you're not, like this is a no-brainer to spend 10 or 20 bucks and, and kind of get educated. Obviously, John, you know, you're a wealth of knowledge and I really appreciate you taking the time on the show with me today. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be with you. Thanks again to John for coming on the show. You know, it's interesting. I know that I talked a few times during the interview about how the book is, like you, sh you should just go out and buy the book even if you're not thinking of selling a business. And I really mean that because this is the type of thing where I've gotten to the point where for a $10 book or a $20 audiobook or one Audible credit, however you think about it, it's not the cost of it, right? The real cost is the time that you have to invest because we have these big lists and we have so many priorities. And I've read through the art of selling your company and I know that anything John Warlow puts out is gonna be of that high quality bar that it's going to be worth your time at some point. And his way of thinking around negotiation and around, I love that, like the 520 rule, there's just a lot of nuggets in his brain that he has put in his three books, frankly, that... It's, it's one of those that I think is a good thing to just have. It's good knowledge to have in your back pocket as you're running a company, even if you never plan to sell. So thank you for joining me again this week. I look forward to talking to you again next Tuesday morning.